Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Michael Suarez. I'm the director of Rare Book School, and it's my privilege to welcome you to this, the first of our summer season of public lectures. Our speaker today is an exemplary citizen of the University of Virginia community, a professor much loved by students and faculty alike. I couldn't begin to speak for the administration. And one who is very, very well known indeed to those down the hall in the Special Collections Library here, for she's known, I won't say notorious, let's say famous, for using Special Collections in a thoroughgoing way in the courses she teaches here at the University of Virginia. Deborah McGrady is Associate Professor in the Department of French, her research interests include the late medieval literary economy, the book, of course, as a cultural artifact, and the history of authorship in her time, the history of readers, of patronage, and very interestingly, in my view, and probably the subject of her most popular course, the transmission and reception of the Middle Ages in modern society. Her course on Joan of Arc, as interpreted throughout the ages, is, as you might imagine, one that has a long waiting list every year. As you would ex expect from such a distinguished teacher, she also has received a number of honors and awards for her research career. She's the recipient of an Andrew Mellon grant for scholarly research. She was a Gould Foundation Fellow at the National Humanities Center in the Research Triangle at North Carolina. And um, she held a, a Mellon Fellowship from the Medieval Institute at the University of Notre Dame. Today, her subject is hunting for textual bodies, rethinking the relationship between the poetic voice and manuscript matter. Please join me in welcoming Professor Deborah McGrady. magical. I just stand up here and that happens for me. That's wonderful. Thank you. So um, I'm really delighted to have this opportunity to share this work with you today. Uh, it's a work in progress. And I should say up front, um, I've been working on this for a couple of years. It's part of a collaborative project uh, that started in 2015 with uh, my colleague at Duke University, Helen Solterer. Uh, the French Embassy funded this project on making medieval poetry. Our idea was to look at two highly original uh, manuscripts from the late Middle Ages that we believed if we looked at them a little more closely, we might uh, find that the narrative we tell about the role of courtly literature and the dissemination of it would change through looking at these two manuscripts. And so today I'm going to introduce you to one of these two manuscripts, uh, that's found in Turin, and uh, should you be hopefully as interested in this codex as I am, uh, you'll find that there's a digitized version of it now available, thanks again to the French Embassy. So with that, I'll begin. Um, in the aftermath of the 1789 French Revolution, 
a French aristocrat named Jérôme d'Arblay, was in possession of a modest 15th century codex currently housed at the Turin State Archives. This manuscript, which I'll refer to as Turin 10, is an oddly formed lyric anthology containing 229 late medieval French poems, of which more than three-fourths are love lyrics. How d'Arblay acquired this codex is as much of a mystery as is the identity of most of the cited poets as well as the work's earlier makers and owners, of which there appears to have been several. All we know about d'Arblay is limited... um, All we know about d'Arblay is limited to his dated signature within the book and to his description of the work on on an added flyleaf prefacing the manuscript. Neither provides much insight into d'Arblay, but the flyleaf does make clear his hope to persuade an amateur collector of the manuscript's value. D'Arblay's sales pitch, if you will, builds on the presumed collector's knowledge of late medieval court culture, and cultivates a nostalgic longing for, what, for when aristocratic culture was celebrated rather than used as a reason for guillotining French nobility, as was the case in 1792. So you have his description here uh, in French. I'll go ahead and read it in English, but you can see it begins, Ce recueil de galanterie. Uh, This collection of gallantries of the good old days is in the language of our ancestors in their puffed breeches, culottes bouffantes. (laughs) One could say that each word represents the purest expression possible of the time of Pope Felix and his son Louis. This collection merits a place in the library of an amateur of antiquities. In addition to classifying the manuscript contents as chivalrous verse used to seduce ladies of yore, D'Arblay added value to the book by linking it to the impressive manuscript and early print collection that the House of Savoy had relocated to Turin back in the late 16th century. That collection is dominated uh, by luxury manuscripts, of which I give you just two examples. The first known as the Très Richeur du Duc de Berry. Uh, actually, Amadeus VIII had completed uh, this uh, uh, Très Richeur after the death of the Duke of Berry. And the so-called Escorial Apocalypse was also funded by the same Duke. Our French aristocrat references this active book patron, Amadeus VIII, who became Pope Felix V in uh, 1439, as well as his son, Louis of Savoy. The Turin 10 now figures as part of the Savoy manuscript collection suggests that D'Arblay's words carried weight in spite of the lack of evidence to support his inference. But what most captured my imagination when reading this description for the first time was D'Arblay's comparison of the work to the puffed breeches worn by nobility, because it unintentionally exposed the discomfort that I imagine an 18th century collector would have felt in gazing on the actual artifact, a discomfort that I certainly experienced when faced uh, with Turin 10 during a 2015 visit to the state archives. So playing off of D'Arblay's sartorial allusions, Let's just say that once you pass beyond the added flyleaf, the reference puffed breeches quickly sag and show substantial wear and tear. <laughs> to imagine Turin 10 mingling with the luxury codices of the Savoy collection 
demands a substantial imaginative leap. For Turin 10 is a scrawny, oddly shaped volume made of 91 folios of cheap, unlined paper that over time has become discolored, torn, and stained. Its pages exhibit cramped handwriting common to the French chancellery class that often challenged its writers who clearly struggled to master the pen or with juvenile attempts at illustration. (laughs) Far from appearing as worthy of association with the Savoy legacy, Turin's 10 stands out as a poor cousin donned in the hand-me-down garments of late medieval aristocracy. As is often the case with secondhand clothing, this codex appears to document the passage of a courtly corpus once intended for an aristocratic audience to a readership of humble means that in turn kept the work in circulation well beyond its prime. As a hand-me-down codex, it shows signs of alteration in the spirit of trimming or tucking an inherited garment to fit the new owner's requirements. If I've allowed myself to revel in unraveling D'Arblay's sartorial metaphor, it is because I have found uh, that it opens up new ways of thinking about late medieval anthologies that have otherwise been shuttered by the common scholarly approach in French studies to such collections as textual monuments that commemorate the dead or store away cultural capital. This approach, however, has been almost exclusively developed through study of high-end manuscript anthologies, such as uh, Prince Charles of Orléans' personal copy of poetry by himself and friends, or luxury editions of Jean Le Sénéchal's 100 Ballads. Jacqueline Sergolini-Toulet's seminal study of these and other 15th century French lyric anthologies led her to conclude that three drives explained the late medieval lyric anthologizing phenomenon, the desire to preserve a revered corpus, to spotlight a literary coterie and action, and to bear witness to personal poetic accomplishments. In all instances, the late medieval anthology, according to Sergolini Toulet, reflected a lyric crisis of invention the belief that all had been said and done, and now was the time to preserve this legacy. Turin 10 suggests a different drive, one that plays out in a number of lesser-studied late medieval French lyric anthologies. While Turin 10 clearly reflects a similar interest in gathering samples of celebrated poetry, its treatment of this corpus belies the comparison of the anthology to a monument. On one hand, Like its celebrated um, counterparts, Turin 10 contains sample lyrics of famed 14th century writers, including the composer and poet Guillaume de Machaut, such as indicated, uh, written in Ballade Machaut at the top of uh, uh, Verso. Um, We also find in here samples from his disciple Eustache Deschamps and the Savoy poet Autant de Grandson. In addition, Turin 10 flaunts a complete copy of Jean Le Sénéchal's 100 Ballades, and you have the title appears in the explicit on the final page of that collection. On the other hand, uh, Turin 10 differs on several important counts from those much-studied models. First, its material composition downplays dramatically the value of its contents. 
Second, the fact that slightly more than half of the entries are unique to this anthology challenges their status as coveted cultural capital. Third, the poetry places alongside sophisticated work amateurish imitation. Fourth, the anthology was not a predetermined work, but rather the result of an organic process that likely covered the first decades of the 15th century and that involved different individuals taking over the work and building on the product they had inherited. And finally, and most intriguingly, on multiple occasions, these individuals as creators of the codex and of the inscribed poetry displaced the collection's lyric contents as the driving focus of the codex. These distinctions lead me to conclude that in Turin 10, poetry functions not as a treasure, but as a common currency that circulates among the work's contributors and owners. Now, in an earlier study on the late medieval drive in French literature to present the book artifact as a surrogate for the missing author, I adopted the term textual bodies to speak of the dual status of authors as creators and creations of the literary act, and to examine the ways in which late medieval French literature was already encouraging readers to fetishize the book to satisfy their nostalgic longing for a living, present writer. Turin 10 offers a fascinating twist on this concept, since it bears witness to pre-modern readers' desire to inscribe their own textual presence in the codex as both creators and creations of the text. So to develop this point, I'm going to linger just a bit more with the physical artifact itself, and then I'm going to um, discuss the presence of three textual bodies that take shape in Turin 10 in relation to three major stages of textual production. I shall first consider two declared owners of the codex, Jean Assier, who takes responsibility for the first three of five fascicles, Guillaume Dain, who then reworks the codex by adding a fascicle that reroutes the thematic messaging of the anthology, and finally, in the final fascicle, a poet identified as Nodin Alize, who registers his lyric coming into being in that fascicle. But first, a little bit more about the manuscript. So Turin 10 is a codicological marvel that promises to surprise, frustrate, and stump the most seasoned manuscript specialist, or at least that's been my experience. Describing the work's physical features leads to a dizzying list of exceptions that set the work apart as an enigma a curiosity that defies efforts to categorize. To begin, Turin 10 consists of five unlined paper fascicles that range from the standard 20 folios to the fourth fascicle that is the combination of 9 plus 18 folios. As regards the origins of these paper fascicles, Alessandro Vitale Brovarone identified in his preface to the 1980 edition of Turin 10 the three different watermarks visible to the naked eye indicated paper sources from Italy, France, and Germany that could be dated from as early as 1387 to as late as 1416. Regarding the scribal hands, Vitale Brovarone distinguished five in the codex, but he also acknowledged that the work was more likely the product of a much larger collective of, quote, dilettants and amateurs who betrayed throughout the codex their struggle with the script. Complicating matters are the curious dimensions of Turin 10. 
measuring 29.5 by 10.5, so basically an 8.5 by 11 paper folded in half like this. Um, Turin 10 is the only known example of such a format used to record French lyric. As Vitale Brovaroni was quick to point it out, its format corresponds, however, to a common late medieval book form, that of the account ledger or agenda, which European merchants as well as households typically use to record financial transactions. This format is distinguished by its slimness, rarely having more than 100 folios, and its dimensions, which have been loosely described as either twice or three times as long as they are broad. What Vitale Brovaroni did not mention in his description of Turin 10 is that this format had occasionally served as a receptacle of literature loosely conceived outside of medieval France. The independent studies of so-called holster books by Gisela Goudat Fig and Eric Quackel have brought to light the occasional use of the ledger format throughout the Middle Ages to accommodate the written word. The choice of this format has been traditionally explained due to its portability, given its thinness and its ease of handling. In the last instance, it's stressed the format fits snugly in the palm of a single hand, leaving the thumb available uh, for holding open the book. Devotional works and musical scores intended for performances from as early as the 10th century, as well as printed actors' prompt books from the 16th century, favored this format. And here you have a 12th century hymnal example. In the late medieval period, this format also served as a repository for loosely defined literary matter. In a fairly organic way, the ledger became, for late medieval merchants, a commonplace book where they might mix account records with details of daily life. Uh, the format is especially witnessed in England. Where, for instance, and I should say really only England, it's only in England that I'm finding uh, the agenda format. Um, but uh, so we have the Renaissance English merchant is your first example. Richard Hill used a ledger booklet for at least three decades to gather an array of written material. In this manuscript now housed at Balliol College in Oxford, Hill intermingled formulae for business letters in English and French, weights and measures for wool and wine, prices of products, recipes for food, beer, and rat poison. They stand all alongside English romances, religious verse and carols, and even a small chronicle of London. Precursors include the 15th century Ashmole 61, that's your center uh, image, which contains exclusively English romances, poems, and didactic writings. And manuscript Douse 228, the final one, severely damaged as you can see, uh, contained a, a complete transcription of the romance of Richard Coeur de Lyon, an English text. Likewise, several 15th century ledger books contain copies of both Chaucer's and Langland's works. So earlier scholars hypothesized that these literary ledgers served traveling performers and thus referred to them as minstrel books or holster books in reference to the saddlebags in which they are presumed to have easily fit. As Andrew Taylor has pointed out, we have yet to find such a saddlebag. Uh, the current scholarly consensus is that these formats were selected more for their affordability than for their portability, and that they were likely meant for a bourgeois household. 
This new information about the use of the format for literary purposes by the merchant and middle class of the late Middle Ages only further complicates questions concerning Turin's origins and provenance. If we pursue D'Arblay's suggestion that the work was linked to the Savoy court, it may be the case that this anthology is an outlier resulting from the direct influence of English or Italian literary recording practices that filtered through the cosmopolitan Savoy court. After all, during the Hundred Years' War, this court dealt extensively with these three regions, although as concerns its literary predilections, especially specifically in the vernacular, there's an unwavering passion for Francophone writing. Of course, Turin-Ten may be the sole surviving witness of a widespread practice in France, as in England and Italy, concerning the use of ledger booklets to create private copies of vernacular literature. Given the flimsy and modest nature of these booklets, it is of little surprise that so few uh, remain in circulation. Yet another line of questioning provoked by Turin 10 concerns the link of ledger accounts with an emerging middle class or merchant class elsewhere in medieval Europe. Does Turin 10 bolster uh, the recent scholarly interest in pursuing the potential role that the French court bureaucracy played in promoting vernacular poetry? While Turin 10 holds back on questions concerning its origin and purpose, the Codex more willingly offers up the names of several of its owners and poets. Through these naming events, it invites its readers to leave aside the biography of the product to pursue the lives of its dual creators and creations. And so I want to turn to these uh, figures, these textual bodies. So in spite of obvious parallels to be drawn with its English counterparts, Turin 10 is distinctive from the surviving examples uh, because rather than the private product of a single owner, it is the creation of multiple contributors over an extended time frame. Turin 10 is a composite manuscript whose purpose and significance changed as it passed from hand to hand. The Codex provides some indication of this process. For instance, uh, the first three fascicles containing 60 folios constitute a single unit that appears to have been predominantly transcribed by a single hand with a single-minded intention. The unit transcribes only examples of the most popular fixed form of French late medieval poetry, the ballade. It provides samples of the celebrated poets already mentioned, Marshall, Deschamps, Granson, as well as two fairly unfamiliar composers, uh, Arpois and Cazert. This unit appears to represent a selective copying from other anthologies. Yolanda Plumley has recently argued that a small portion of the first fascicle appears to have been directly transcribed from a single French chansonnier, so a music anthology. It is also in the first unit that we find the complete transcription of the 100 ballads attributed to Jean-Louis Sénéchal. That lyric tale of a young man suffering in love is then followed by a dozen responses to, to the collected poems that was composed by several prominent aristocratic figures, including Louis of Orléans, who was, king of, uh, who was brother to King Charles VI of France, the Duke of Berry, King Charles VI's uncle, and Philip of Artois. In all of the 152 ballades presented in the first unit, 80% of the entries are either witnessed in other extant manuscripts 
or are identified in the Codex as the work of a known medieval figure. Thus, at an early stage, at least, Turin 10 appears to have resulted from an early canon-building impulse that confirms Sergolini Toulet's contention that late medieval lyric anthologies reflect a desire to preserve a respected literary corpus. At the bottom of the penultimate uh, folio, which you have in front of you, a penultimate folio of this first unit, a single individual claims responsibility for the canon-focused anthology. Here, Jean Assier dates the work to 1401 and declares himself as the sole scribe of the collection. Jean Assier qui a écrit, who wrote of these ballads in the year 1401. The identity of this individual is still up for debate. But it's possible that we have before us the partial autograph anthology of Jean Dapsier, captain for the French forces, who received payment for his participation in the war against the English uh, from the French king in 1435. Although we may never be able to say for certain if Assier was responsible for the production of the first three fascicles of Turin 10 or the precise context in which it was produced, there are a few important observations we can draw from the emergence on Folio 59 Verso of this declaration of ownership and responsibility for the anthology. In a collection made up of French poetry dating from the second half of the 14th century, a textual presence takes shape in the closing folios to declare himself creator of the anthology at the same time that he assures his existence through creation of the book itself. His desire to intertwine his existence with this book leaves no room for biographical details of his quotidian life and instead valorizes his status as a reader of celebrated poetry, a scribe in the service of this poetry, and more than likely a book owner keen to have a personal copy of French lyric that, while humble in its materiality, speaks of an avid appreciation for a cultural wealth that reflected and promoted aristocratic ideals. That Jean Assier's humble lyric ledger has survived 600 years to represent the only known example in the French tradition of this modest format um, is surprising in and of itself. But that it subsequently survived as a hand-me-down collection repurposed by subsequent medieval readers to fit their own needs and preferences is what truly sets Turin 10 apart from other literary ledgers regardless of the linguistic tradition they document. Turin 10 is in fact filled with signs of subsequent participants in the continued production of the Codex. For example, a few pages into fascicle four, a two-page montage of pen tries, verse attempts, signatures, and a curious hieroglyphics interrupts the poetic trajectory. I've worked a lot on these. I've got a sense, but I still don't know. <laughs> okay, yeah, one presence stands out as responsible for and reflected in fascicle four a bleeding signature at the bottom of the closing page of Assier's lyric ledger introduces a certain Guillaume Dain, who is unknown outside of Turin. So he's signing on the last folio of Assier's fascicle. Assier has signed on the previous folio. Dain then reappears at the end of this gathering where it is declared that these ballads 
are Guillaume Dans. Although one could simply read Dans' inscribed double presence as solely an assertion of Assier's anthology, there are a number of reasons to approach Dans' double framing signature as an invitation to read Fascicle for as a product of his making and as an expression of his literary coming into being. The notion that someone else has taken over the anthology is immediately manifested by the presence of a distinctive hand that takes over and that thereafter dominates um, fascicle four. So as you can see when comparing the last verso, um, last verso of fascicle three with the next folio that is part of fascicle four, the new hand is less compact. A close analysis of the hand in Gathering 4 reveals several distinguishing characteristics, uh, including the introduction of the looping L that you see in that top line that we don't see uh, previous to this. Um, so, as we progress through Fascicle 4, we also discover evidence of greater artistic engagement with the transcription of poetry. For the first time in the anthology, we discover layout innovation, uh, seen here in the transcription of a Deschamps poem um, on 64 recto. Um, we also see some decorative lettering throughout this fascicle. And it's also in this fascicle that we find our sketch, our lovely sketch of a court lady. In addition to these material signs of a break with Assier, the Assier unit, the fourth fascicle introduces new subject matter. Whereas the lyric entries in the Assier unit stray only three times from the dominant amorous theme, one-third of the 34 poems contained in fascicle four abandon love to address social and political concerns. We find, for instance, poems on the Flemish War, and the Franco-English conflict, as well as entries on aging and sickness and on court corruption. There are also several lyric pieces that are stridently anti-amorous. It is noteworthy as well that only 13 of, or 38% of the poems provided in this fascicle are witnessed in other extant manuscripts. So uh, in terms of originality of, of verse, it's, it's getting a bit higher with this new edition. For these reasons, this fourth fascicle, which I'll refer to as the Dent edition, cannot be read as a continuation of Assier's unit in, the strict, in its strictest sense. The Assier unit is dominated by the work of celebrated poets that valorize aristocratic ideals about love. The format it adopts, a personal ledger account intended as a temporary record of monetary matters, encourages us to view this poetry as valued cultural capital, but also as common currency a wealth that had value outside the closed elite purview of court culture and that was sufficiently accessible for enthusiasts to consider recording this material in a temporary makeshift book. Through it, we see the albeit vague sketch of a non-aristocratic reader eager to collect for private consumption witnesses of this aristocratic culture. In contrast, the Dillon edition points to a very different textual body taking shape in and through the developing anthology. From a secondhand anthology, the Dillon edition produces a new body of work. The lyric editions open the poetic landscape, not only to address political and social realities, 
but also to register open attacks on court culture, pointing to the corruption and indifference of leaders to those who suffer at their hands. In this regard, the Dent edition demands uh, that we revisit Sergolini Toulet's identification of celebrating literary coteries as a raison d'être of the medieval anthology, and to recognize that this edition contests the coterie celebrated in the Assier unit. So moving to our final fascicle, fascicle five announces yet another adjustment to the messaging of Turin 10. First fascicle five revives the amorous focus of the original Assier unit. Not a single entry pursues the political and social issues introduced in the Delt edition. Yet this new lyric unit also displays an innovative spirit that is measurable and tangible. First of the 41 poems in Fascicle 5, only three, or 7% of the entries, are witnessed in other medieval manuscripts. So we're moving from 80% witnessed elsewhere from the first unit uh, to 38% of the poems in the Dent edition witnessed elsewhere to now only 7% of these poems known from other manuscripts. Second, Fascicle 5 adds women to the mix by including five poems in a female voice. In fact, the last poem of Turin 10 closes the collection by recording a woman's pleasure in love. And prior to Fascicle 5, there's only one entry in the female voice. Finally, eight of the 41 poems in Fascicle 5 are attributed to a certain Nodin Alice, who, like Assier and Dent, is only known to us through Turin 10. And you see that there, Ballade de Nodin Alice. Nodin Alice, by name alone, emerges as an exotic figure in Turin 10. As a stranger with a foreign name among the known writers of Francophone late medieval poetry, Alice relentlessly haunts the final pages of this bound collection. These naming events trace out the contours of an accomplished and ambitious poet. For not only does Alice prove to be a master of the ballade that dominates the growing collection, but he is also identified as the author of the only examples in Turin 10 of a rondel and the more challenging fixed form, the virolet. And he is perhaps also the author of the only uh, identified songs, chanson in the collection, and I'll come back to that in a minute. The first entry attributed to Alice, um, which you see beginning on 78 recto, as well as the virolet, which you might recognize from the poster, entered on folios 88 verso and 89 recto, render even more complex this poetic body because they bear witness to the poet's struggle to master these forms through the corrections they register. So you can see a line um, has been corrected here. This is not a repeat. This is a reworking of the rhyme to have a sufficient amount of syllables. And this is all a tremendous effort to write a virolet. Um, these entries provide a material dramatization of the coming into being of a poet who is exposed in the process of composing. Emphasizing Alice's singularity is the fact that these entries are unique in a predominantly correction-free collection. And adding to this dramatization is the fact that they register a distinctive hand in the collection, as you can see in comparison of uh, verso recto. 
In this respect, uh, Ali's as a textual and material construction provides us a fascinating example of a textual body taking shape before our eyes. Ali's textual coming into being is further linked to the artifact itself through embedded references to the poetry that precedes his appearance. For example, in one entry, he builds on a famous refrain from Machaut's Corpus, a Machaut poem that is conveniently recorded in the first fascicle of Turin 10. The content of the poems that bear his name show also a clear desire to signal a poetic presence emerging from this lyric patchwork. In his first ascribed entry, Alice declares that his lady inspires him to sing of his love. That's your first citation, j'aime me fichanter. References to his ability or failure to sing are found in two of his subsequent poems, and more importantly, and this is your second citation, in the third poem attributed to Alice, he declares himself author of a poetic corpus. Here he writes of the pleasure he takes when to his lady he has the opportunity to use a variety of poetic forms. You see, he mentions the song, the Rondeau, Vironet, and Baudy. That the present collection attributes to Alice the only Rondeau and Vironet in the entire codex seems more than coincidental. As regards the references to songs, chansons, it's also intriguing that only seven identified chansons appear in Turin 10, and they all figure in fascicle 4 immediately before the description of Alice's corpus, but they are not attributed neither to him nor anyone else. Finally, Alice further takes shape as a professional poet through frequent references to participation in annual medieval celebrations that served as a venue for poetic offerings and competitions. Uh, in an early ballad, he declares that it's a New Year's offering to his lady. In uh, a second ballad, he references the 1st of May, uh, uh, revived uh, in the late Middle Ages and a poetic competition, always part of it. And then in ballad, ballad 222, which you have here, he addresses the prince d'amour, uh, the prince of love, who judges a poetic competition. So the co coherent narrative that emerges from this internal collection of Ali's poems in fascicle 5 is, however, troubled by its material reality. I hope that even a cursory glance of the actual entries identified with Nodin Ali's has alerted you to multiple hands involved in staging his poetic performance. Are these poems identified with Alice because other readers discovered his textual remains and patched his corpus together? Or because they were contributing themselves to the creation of a textual body? Turin 10 is a unique specimen of a late medieval French lyric anthology that presents us with a number of challenges to our current thinking from how we define and engage with anthologies to our prejudices about the value of and who valued so-called courtly poetry. It may have been that d'Arblay simply sought to disguise a poor cousin in the proverbial emperor's clothes when he evoked the puffed breeches of yore, but his analogy proves to be rich with significance. Turin 10 testifies to a second life, the second-hand survival of a cultural capital often qualified by scholars as the exclusive wealth of aristocracy. This tattered, humble codex 
exposes a number of textual bodies of modest stock collecting, contesting, and composing so-called courtly poetry. Turin 10 initiates its own variation of seduction in the spirit of Roland Barthes' discussion of reading as striptease. When gazing on Turin 10, now possible thanks to its digitization, one cannot help but be drawn into a work that ultimately cast off the expected material finery associated with late medieval courtly poetry to tantalize us with different hands, voices, names, and intentions that it exposes. Thank you. I'm very open to questions, comments, reservations, etc. As I said, this is this is very much a work in progress. Yes. This is super exciting. I have two like tiny questions that you may not have the answer to that extend what you were doing. So I struck by the agenda format mm -hmm. and its appropriateness to columns of numbers and poetry. Yeah. And I wonder, one, if you You've seen extended prose in the agenda format as well? Yeah. And the second thing I wonder, related, is there's pretty distinctive soiling going on mm -hmm. in the images we saw. Do you, have, do you make anything about the reading habits that happen based on where the soiling occurs on the paper? Yeah, there are two things there. So first of all, in, in terms of the format, I agree. Uh, again, when I saw this for the first time, I was completely freaked out by it, right? But then I thought, why is there not more poetry? This is perfect for poetry. Uh, so yeah, the format is, is a beautiful uh, receptacle for it. But again, it's the only example of, of fixed forms. Uh, there's poetic forms in it. The second thing, in terms of the soiling, it's, it's rather complex. Um, you may be aware that Turin, uh, the Turin Library uh, has suffered two fires over time. Uh, we don't know but we believe that this uh, booklet was already there. Uh, and so some of that damage, it's been speculated, may be from water damage as a result of that fire. So it's extremely hard uh, to determine. But what, one thing that you can determine is that, for example, it's very clear that fascicles one, and th one through three circulated together. They were bound together, uh, very clean within and very worn um, on the outsides. Uh, in terms of the add, adding of four and five, there's no sense um, in the material aspect of it that it ever circulated independently. It may have. Um, and I should also add, we may only have part of this, or this might uh, uh, be a, a true composite in terms of being, you know, um, pulled apart and put together again in, in that respect. Guillaume Dunn's framing signatures helps a lot in, in, in making at least fascicle four uh, clear that it was attached. Yeah, thank you. Yes? When did this work come to your attention? Um, so I had a uh, I had a three year uh, grant uh, from Mellon to do a, digitiz a digitizing project for Guillaume de Machaut. And the idea was to get as many of his manuscripts digitized because as it's, it's clearly becoming a dominant pet peeve of mine, um, 
I was struck as a specialist of Machaut that everybody was working on the luxury manuscripts. Uh, and that's four of 34 manuscripts. And so I wanted to get the others digitized to encourage people to work on them. Uh, I ran out of money. <laughs> Turin 10 seemed at the bottom of my list because I had only a description of it, uh, that it was a flimsy, you know, messy, not sure if Machaut was really in there or not. Uh, but when the French embassy proposed that this work, I thought, Here, here's the time. So I entered into this uh, agreement with the embassy for this grant before I'd actually ever even seen uh, Turin 10. And to speak of, uh, you know, uh, the, the entry on it, the description of it, uh, was, was sorely lacking. So, um, yeah. Yes? The paper you said came from three different countries. Yeah. Did, did they correspond to the, like, Pascal one through three is from one country. I mean, can you specify which country with which Pascal? Um, Vitaly Bovaroni did a little bit of that. Um, um, when I went to Turin, they had no means of, of looking, nothing to put. What, what, what was it called? The well, we were talking about light sheets or movie yeah. lamps Poobie or cell phones. Or... So they didn't have any of that uh, there for me to use. Um, I talked to Vitaly Bovaroni, who works at the university there, um, and uh, he did say that he found a full mixture, but that they're going to be consistently separate. So the three he identified, two were in the first fascicle, one is in either the fourth or fifth, I think it's the fourth, but there are many, um, there are many uh, watermarks in there that uh, have not been identified. That would be the first thing. And there are other, it hasn't undergone a very close examination in terms of, um, in terms of the watermarks. So it, look, it looks very messy, and yet units one through three, there's a consistency. You don't find the paper of units one through three in units four, and you don't find the paper of unit four in unit five. So it's clear that they were separate. Yes? This is perhaps a very naive question, but uh, you said that So Novum Alice is, is real. So, so there's no record of this. We don't we don't have a record of anyone named Novum. We have no one named Alice. Um, I got very excited at a moment because I realized Alice in the South was often used for Alice. Uh, that didn't pan out at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a woman. I knew that. <laughs> um, some have said that it has an, uh, uh, an Arabic twist to it. Um, but we know nothing. I mean, it's, it's not a name that pops up. Um, uh, doing searches for Nodan Aviz, you, you can't find, even in the genealogies, you don't, you don't find any presence of this. So in that respect, it, it's, it, not many people, unsurprisingly, have, have worked on this manuscript, but those who have were, were, were stumped. So, so it does, you know, it is quite exotic, and it's, it's only here. It's only here. I should also say it's quite exotic to have, even if his name was John Doe, to have someone in a manuscript uh, naming himself or being named eight times and looking at that and seeing some kind of coherent narrative about I am a poet, uh, that would be an extraordinary in and of itself. So the name just adds to it, wherever it's, wherever it's coming from. Yes. I 
thank you. I really enjoyed that so much. Um, and I, I'm curious that I'm, I'm very interested in your just making a distinction between this and the other fancy pres yeah. presentation manuscripts mm -hmm. that people have talked about before. And so I'm wondering whether this has influenced your sense. It doesn't seem like patronage is any part no. of this manuscript. No. It doesn't seem to involve itself in that kind of circulation, does it? Not at so, all. So I wondered if it, if you, you just would see it completely differently, or if it inflected your sense, mm -hmm. just because she's worked very significantly on patronage, which other people might not know. But it, yeah. um, I wondered if it influenced your thinking about, um, you know, what, what, what lyric is doing right. outside of patronage or even within patronage. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot because, um, and I may have gone here to escape from the larger project, but um, one of the interesting uh, things that this has made me think more about and um, will probably be um, part of the next project is that is something that I've, I said at the beginning of this, and that is in the French tradition, courtly poetry exist at the court and exist in the books owned by princes uh, and their entourage. Um, a sample like this, we have other samples, not, not many. I think there are probably more out there than, than we've discussed because in the French tradition, we're absolutely not interested in that narrative at all. I think what we see here is precisely um, something that, that resonates with what some scholars in English have been working on with, with these other ledger examples that um, this poetry was of interest to people other than those in, in that court space. I would also say that um, uh, France is, is in a terrible state from 1407 till the end of the war. 1407, the brother of the king is assassinated, a civil war breaks out. 1418, the, the French take over, uh, the English take over France, um, Paris, the, the court is dispersed and chased away if they haven't been beheaded. So there's, um, it's a moment where the court isn't even there to keep this alive, really, would be another way of looking at it, right? So the fact that you have these little dingy traces here and in other examples, not the same format, but members of the bureaucracy, the court bureaucracy, which I tend to think would be you know, somewhere in that space of, of the middle class world, we're finding them beginning to um, open up their, create their own libraries. And they're creating it by writing it themselves or um, by hiring a modest scribe to do the work for them. So we, we have uh, two individuals, uh, Tongui and uh, Prumeto, are two names that we have from this period where we've discovered only in the past uh, decade. Uh, that these are bureaucratic members who had started making uh, libraries of vernacular poetry. And so this may be another witness of that. So it's that dispersal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's Mary. Are, are you aware of the use of this tall, thin format in early printed books? Yeah, I, I, I have, I, I, found out about the um, about um, the prompt books for the actors, uh, devotional uh, books of hours as well. Um, printed books take on this uh, model. Um, so I did just recently. I found that this is really picked up. So it's even more interesting that there's you know 
size of books account. I have to go and look at it again, but it seems we have a funny little um, sort of beauty recipes. Remember what I'm talking about? I think it's called La Decoration de l'Humaine Nature. Oh, I will, def I will definitely be interested. Well, I might, yeah. I might be a lot of interest, but it seems to be when I looked at that, which has been for several years now, that it's the, the, the shape of it is kind of funny. I, I will definitely. And it's just little recipes for, you know, what kind of creams you can make that will uh, make your skin green, yes. what you could, you know, just little herbal things. Um, and that's, really you're saying it's in our collection, yeah. our Gordon collection. I'll definitely have to take a look at that. Yes, behind me, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, I, I didn't follow the uh, discussion about the contrast between the, the luxurious format and yeah, the more humble mm -hmm. format that you are working on. And when I was listening to your talk, I was reminded of the, um, the Nobel Elliott studies on the same country of Europe. And one of the arguments is that um, when there is a possibility of upward social mobility, the non-Elliots tend to imitate agriculture. Yes. And when there is no possibility of upward social mobility, they tend to subvert early culture instead of imitating that. And it seems that, well, according to what you talk yeah. about in the political situation, it seems that it corroborates over what the world earlier saying. So yeah. I was wondering what was going on after the political situation was more stabilized. So it was kind of cultural phenomenon <coughs> yeah. or it was kind of continued cultural production. You know, it, it's, um, those who know me know I complain about this a lot in, 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 in the French medieval studies, this period, 14th and 15th century, uh, it's a period severely understudied. Um, and um, it's one of those things where kind of tracking what is happening, uh, there hasn't been a lot of work on it. Uh, but really, when you look at this 100 years war that's going to trickle on to 1435, some say, about 1435, some would say 1454, but there's a lot of instability uh, within the court itself. The kings that come about immediately after uh, we finally have peace in France are not at all interested uh, in poetry, in this kind of court literary culture. So there's, there's this vacuum that's occurring. So in terms of thinking about what would attract these individuals uh, to collecting this poetry. I think in, in part, it is emulation. Um, I think in part, so there's gonna be multiple parts, in part, it's that many of the poets of this period are bureaucrats. Eustache uh, Deschamps was secretary. Um, so they're, they're actually, when you think of it that way, they're kind of bridging those two cultures, right? So when I say that there's anti poetry in that fourth fascicle, a lot of that anti-court poetry is known as the work of Eustache Deschamps. Um, a lot of it in there is also in obvious imitation of Deschamps, so that kind of tension tradition is living there. Um, I think in terms of that last portion of your, of your um, question, I, I think there just needs to be a lot more study on this in terms of, it, of this poetry being picked up in 16th century print. Uh, there hasn't been a sufficient amount of work to really study the aspect of uh, the medieval literature continuing. Some of them, like 
we know that Chartier, uh, one of the last great poets in medieval culture, is, is really popular. But that kind of transmission, um, there's still a lot of work to be done. Yes? Um, so in thinking about following up this, these comments about format and, and you know, bureaucratic, members of the bureaucracy and the civic secretariat who you know, are writing this, um, the hands that we see, with I think one exception, are pretty, they're, they're pretty gritty secretary hands. Yes. There's one that's a nice-ish but hard. Yes. So it would probably suggest to me, and I wonder if it suggests to you, that these are members of the secretariat who had a ledger to hand, as yeah. opposed to investing more meaning in the choice to go with that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does make sense. Um, uh, uh, De Hamel and uh, Quackel have both made this, the, uh, have speculated uh, that this format was easily purchased in stationary stores. Mm -hmm. I'm still looking for where they, they get this information, um, and I've written to them and, and I'm waiting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is that speculation, first of all, that format is, is everywhere and easily accessible. There's a good argument for that because if we look at the paper and we see that fascicle four and five are added onto it, then that suggests that that format is out there. Um, we've lost a lot of that, right? Think about this, this looks like a, a longer agenda for anyone who still keeps a paper, thin paper agenda. Um, how many of us hold on to those? Those are the things we throw out. So. It, it, it's also it's that kind of disposable material. There may have been tons of these out there, and they just didn't have a good 18th century bookseller who <laughs> 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 could sell it. Um, so, so, so it's hard to know. But I do, but I do think looking at the English side, and I have to say, I, I was saying this at lunch. I am on a wild goose chase to find examples of this because when I tell you they are a form of a holster book. When uh, uh, Giselle Fig or Eric Quackle or De Hamel, when they refer to holster books, the measurements are all over the place. So I got really excited uh, when I found this out, but then when I went and looked at the manuscripts, yeah, a few of them look like an agenda, but others have different proportions. Um, and I'm not really clear, you know, it's what will fit in a saddle book, a saddle bag, I, I don't know. So part of this is, fantasy or a nightmare I have is that all, there are millions, there are hundreds of copies of these in libraries and I just don't know about them. And so there's part of that. So remember my name. Jennifer McGrady. These will be up here. These will be up here. These few, these happy few. I think the liveliness of the Q&A speaks so well to the liveliness and the intellectual verb of the presentation that we heard today. We can continue the conversation. You are all most cordially invited to a reception at Rare Book School on the first floor of Alderman Library. There will be food and adult beverage as well as other things. So please come join us.